Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. We are back from our summer hiatus. Took a couple of months off there to relax, refresh, recharge. But now we're back with you for regular episodes through the end of 2019. And we'll go over what the schedule is going to be at the end of the show because I am very excited to get to our guest for today, which is something we recorded actually back in the spring when I had the opportunity to speak with Philippe Belaish and Rachel Leah Jones, who are the directors of a new documentary entitled Advocate, which came out earlier this year was featured at the Hot Docs Festival there in Toronto. And it looks at a Israeli lawyer who represents political prisoners in Israel, including a lot of Palestinians. And it's a really fascinating story and one of these things that I didn't really expect to to see or, or to learn about. And just a wonderful story and told extraordinarily well in this documentary. So, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Rachel Leah Jones and Philippe Belaish. Okay, and I'm joined over the phone by the directors of the film, Rachel Leah Jones and Philippe Belaish. Welcome to the show, both of you. (laughs) Thank you. Hi, Sean. Thank you. Hello. So uh, th- this film uh, is is outstanding, and uh, it's gotten a lot of uh, positive press, and I think rightfully so. So let's just get into it, uh, and we'll start first with you, uh, Rachel. What attracted you to the story here of of Leah and, and her career as a Israeli attorney who's representing Palestinians? Um, well, I've known Leah for about half my life, pretty much all of my adult life, and I followed her work and admired her work, admired her, uh, the kind of the particular role that she plays uh, on the Israeli left. And so she was an influential, influential figure in my life. Um, sometimes when things are that closer, you take them for granted that much, you don't think um, that you should be making a movie about them. Philippe, uh, who has also known her for a long time, maybe 15 years, or more, um, did have it in mind all along that Leah, really somebody somebody should make a movie about Leah. And he kept saying it every so often. And I'd say, yeah, somebody should make a movie about Leah. And it took us both a really long time to sort of look at each other and go, well, who's that? <laughs> Nobody's making a film about Leah. I guess that somebody is us. Um, I think that the timing was interesting because, um, you know, you could, you, you one might think uh, she's... Uh, She's entering her fifth decade of activism and uh, and work, um, but I think that the timing is different. It's not really just about capturing um, somebody who 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 may be you know close to being you know whose heyday may be over. It's really about the times that we're in politically, and Leah is um, somebody who uh, spoke truth to power before the term became trendy. And will continue to do so after fear makes it unfashionable. And it's that fear uh, that uh, that we're in, be it in the U.S., be it in Israel, be it in Turkey, be it in Hungary, be it in Brazil. This, these sort of these times that are upon us that I think that we all really need a Leah 
in our lives. Um, and what I mean by that is a lot of people would say to us, well, you know, is this a movie that um, that can reach right wingers or centrists even? Are you going to convince anybody? And I said, I want this movie to reach anybody, but I also want it to reach people from the center leftward because I think we need um, we need to be reminded of what that kind of life of struggle is. And Leah makes struggle look fun. <laughs> Leah wakes up in the morning and 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 doesn't you know um, strap that cross to her back and start you know trudging and oi and this and that. Although she does make a lot of noise as she goes about her business, singing and so on, but she makes um, she makes the work of resistance uh, to sort of dominant modes of power look fun. And I think we could all really use that kind of modeling these days. And that's what's interesting about this story to me is and and Philip, I'm curious about what you think because. Uh, Rachel mentioned fear there, and this, it seems to me from afar, I mean, I'm a Canadian who's grown up in Canada and, and ha doesn't have that much of a personal connection to uh, Israel, yet I look at this story and I think that she just, my initial reaction when I heard about this story was she is putting herself in danger on a daily basis. Actually, she does. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there are periods... Uh, that are very hard for her, where she gets um, very often, meaning it can be once a month, or a you know attacks or uh, I mean verbal attacks, or she's being attacked um, uh, publicly, or she also gets some sometimes um, a. Not exactly death, direct death threats, but but um, uh, kind of <clears throat> attacks that would could make people uh, that are uh, a, a, that don't don't know her, but that will uh, meet her. Since is described as the enemy of. Uh, as the enemy that she, you know, she, so yes, it's dangerous for her. And she also passed through her career through periods where uh, she stopped being the advocate of the devil and she became uh, a human rights lawyer in the eyes of the public. She's always been a human rights lawyer, but in the eyes of the Israeli public, she, it, it her image changed. Uh, throughout the years, so in, in, if you can remember, even if it's a become, it's, be, it's becoming an old uh, memory for all of us. But during the decades of the uh, Oslo uh, uh, Accord and peace process, then people turn to her and say, "Okay, maybe she will. She, we have to hear this woman." And but since the the second intifada, she went back being um, the, the enemy. Hmm. Yes. Well, she's not the enemy, but she's perceived as a public enemy. <laughs> by yes, the, you're, by the you're right. Jewish public, yeah. Right, and, and that's right. sort of the, the thing in terms of trying to figure out what her motivation is, right? It, it's, it's, it's rare to see people gravitate to positions that you know, I, I think she she go into this knowing that she was going to be unpopular. Is that a fair statement? I I would say that 
it's also have a, a, a it's also answering to your question about making the choosing her uh, as a subject of the film the fact that she's so constant and consistent in her position in her um, a realization that there is an occupation and that um, a, she wants to um, uh, defend the people who are occupied. Her constant and consistent position um, make her um, uh, an example. So I don't know. I don't. I really don't think that Leah from the beginning imagined that her career will be so long. I think. I think she was much more optimistic and she was imagining when she began that in, within a few years all the all her uh, um, uh, um, all her people all her all the people in Israel will understand that occupation is not a good thing and that it will end and and but so I don't think that she was she she began thinking that she's gonna she will have a whole her, her whole career and her whole life in the position that she has now. Yeah, of course not. I mean, she um, she she says about herself and of her generation the 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 the, the radical leftists of the early seventies we. Uh, we walked around um, thinking that we had the truth in our pocket, and all we had to do is take it out of our pocket and duplicate it in enough copies that if we spread the word, you know, the truth, the the truth would uh, whatever would become apparent and and so on. And obviously, most people of that generation got over the notion of of absolute truths, um, and uh, we entered into a more you know postmodern, post-structural era, but Leah has some of that left over, um, and I think that the truth is not that she has the only truth, but she has a good truth. She likes her truth. Her truth is humanistic. Her truth is equality. Her truth is justice. Her truth is fairness. Her her truth is, is about the fact that that it's possible for people to live together, and it's possible for them not to abuse each other, and I like her truth, too. I think it's a good truth, and I'm happy she held on to that truth. Does she see a world where that truth is not um, coming any closer, but it's uh, in many ways slipping further and further away? Yes, but she doesn't see a world that um, has offered her uh, any reason to give up that truth. Not not at all. And it's funny because sometime in the mid-90s, uh, about mid-career, she got a little um, panicked because she was still sort of, you know, strong in her mid 40s or, you know, early 50s. She 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 had plenty more to give and do. I mean, she's she's obviously palpably, you can see in the film, a workaholic. And she said, OK, any day now they'll release all the political prisoners and there'll be um, some kind of a political solution and I'm going to be out of a job. So she registered for some kind of civil law course. <laughs> Basically, she understood that she was going to have to change. You know, she said, I'll be a lawyer, but I'll change my trade. Maybe it was mediation or, or something within the realm of civil law that obviously didn't last very long. And she never imagined that not only would things um, not get better, but they would just get worse and worse. Well, because that brings up an interesting question about, again, speaking to her motivation, you mentioned that how she has been demonized to a certain extent by right-wingers so how much of what she is doing and is the motivation left right sort of politically motivated versus sort of a, a universal rights and a humanistic perspective that there's these principles that need to be upheld regardless of what your 
perspective is, uh, left, right, Israeli, Palestinian, whatever it is, that there's just the, the humanity of it. I, I think that um, Leah is one of those people for whom being a political lawyer or polit politically motivated lawyer and a human rights lawyer, in theory, that being something objective, she sees no contradiction between them. Mm -hmm. I mean, her, her, her critical politic is motivated by some very, very basic ideas. Leah's a really, really, really smart cookie, and she's very, very sharp, but she doesn't um, think of herself as an intellectual. She doesn't think of herself as a social critic. She thinks of herself as a doer, and she, you know, goes out with, with, with some very simple mantras, and those mantras just have to do with dignity, with fairness, with equality, uh, justice, things that one could sort of dig, you know, take, break apart and say, well, what does that really mean? But we all know what those things basically mean. And, and that, and that those things are universal and that, uh, and she's basically more than anything, she's a non-racist. Um, big words like imperialism, colonialism, she's not using them anymore. You know, I think mm -hmm. most people, you know, at least of her generation got over that rhetoric, not because it wasn't true necessarily, but, you know, other rhetoric has taken its place. But those other concepts, far more basic, they still they still guide her. But she's, as, it, as it's pointed out sort of in the film and in some of the press material, she's dealing in a system that is inherently, to a certain extent, unfair. And the people who she's defending aren't getting, aren't, when they walk into a, a courtroom or they're, they're in a proceeding, aren't presumed as innocent or the scales aren't balanced when she walks into a room. So how has she been able to, over her career, maintain that and not become jaded? Because it seems mm -hmm. like it'd be so easy to just sort of throw your hands up at the whole system. I think in some ways her humanism also extends to her compatriots and to the people who actually operate the judicial and penal system in Israel. So that doesn't mean she... Um, gives them many discounts. She's extremely critical of the system. The system is fundamentally flawed. The occupier is judging the occupied. It's flawed that, you know, none of the prosecutors and none of the judges are the compatriots or the, the, the peers of the people who are being prosecuted and funneled through the system. She knows that. She also knows that she comes from the other side originally. She thinks that that gives her some capacity to wield a little bit more um, something. I'm not that power isn't really the right term, but assert herself probably more effectively. But I believe that it's her humanism, which also guides her to think that even if it's uh, only 1% of the time that she can make a significant difference for a client, and 1% is being generous. <laughs> um, it it's because she's a human being appealing to another human being, even if that human being is a military court judge or a military prosecutor who can only see the Palestinian in front of them as a category, an enemy, an occupied subject, a terrorist, what have you, um, that they can't individuate them. They don't see them as having personal and political trajectories. They don't see them as having a collective consciousness. And if they do, they think, well, there's nothing reparable there. Their collective consciousness is one that resists the occupation. So there's nothing to fix. They can't be, um, what's the word? Um, help me here, Philippe Belaish. Um, um, oh, no. Um, uh, where, where you assume that uh, rehabilitated, right? A yes. lot of the fundamental aspects of uh, youth law and uh and prosecution of youth um, is the notion that you can also rehabilitate them. I think the judges 
in their own way are making an interesting and strange confession when they are uh, meeting out such heavy punishments uh, to uh, Palestinian youth and that they're saying, well, I can't rehabilitate their objection to the occupation. So, well, but that brings up the question, too, about trust, right? I mean, if she's coming in with she has this perspective, she's Israeli. How, how does she get obviously at this point she has a reputation, but how does she get Palestinians to trust her? It's a really good question. <laughs> Do you have an answer, Philippe? I don't know. I don't know. But I, I don't know because I was not there when she began her career. But what we what we heard from some of the, the of her very first client that is not in the movie is that they immediately, immediately feel that they were uh, that she was talking to him. Um, at eye level, in a very simple way, in a very direct way, not uh, even though recognizing that she was coming from the other side, she was an, an Israeli Jew and not a Palestinian. Uh, he, uh, the, the, um, one of her early clients that we met told, told us that she, that he feels that she he feels very comfortable uh, uh, talking with her. So it, you know, it might be, it might be um, um, uh, that she's she has a, an enormous empathy for people, and then people f- feels it. It can, and it's of, of course uh, linked to what Rachel said uh, earlier about her being absolutely not racist. I mean, trying and acting uh, without um, uh, discrimination. And you can even see it in um, film that she's she her um, uh, the people who are working in her office are Palestinians and she's not very um, um, uh, soft with them. She treats them like, like workers, and if she, if they don't do their job uh, as as she yeah uh, uh, as she like it, she, she tell them directly. She doesn't. Ne prend pas des pincettes in French. She, yeah, she doesn't have this patronizing side of, of a kind of a of 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 a you know a, a, a racial politically correct. Uh, she's mm. she's 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 an equal opportunity bitch, <laughs> and she's an equal op- and she's an equal opportunity champion and advocate, literally, and uh, and friend and ally and uh, and the whole gamut. Yeah. And I don't know if she will say that, but I'm, I, I don't know if it's what she thinks, but it's what I think about her, about her navigating in the system, in the, in the, in the, um, uh, Israeli, um, justice system. I think she, that the reason that she, she continued to believe that something can be changed, it's because she doesn't, want to think that they are cynical. I, she does think that the task that the judges are giving to themselves is impossible uh, because it's inherently flawed. As Rachel said, um, uh, the occupier is judging the occupied. But she, she d- does think that those people uh, are not cynical. So she can convince them. She can change their mind. She can have an influence. So, so it's almost like she is saying that she's going to fight this fight and she's going to do this because this is the only way or, or perhaps the best way 
for these people to, if not get along, at least live side by side. And she's sort of on, on a micro level fighting for this greater good, no? I don't know if she, if I actually I'm quite sure she doesn't think that um, redemption is going to come from the legal system. Okay. In that sense, I mean she's a lawyer by 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 profession and by function, not by not by idealism. I don't think that she thinks that that is the the arena um, that is going to save any of us. In many ways, um, um, security jurisprudence is an arena that only kind of you know imp, um, impacts in the sense of you know adding to. Um, um, wrongdoing upon wrong, wrongdoing. Um, I do know that she was already in law school when she had a change of consciousness. She saw a whole lot of people uh, entering uh, into a very vulnerable situation, and she said, "I can step in and uh, and try to mitigate, um, however I can, and uh, use the tools that I have." And that became her arena. I don't think that she made a choice to become a human rights lawyer. I think. Um, um, it chose her in a way. Um, and I think that she does believe that ultimately um, uh, redemption, I, for lack of a better word, will come, um, you know, from from movement building, from 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 grassroots uh, political activism and 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 community building and all of those words, which, you know, I, I don't even know if she knows how to say because she's not that's that's not what she does. But she knows she knows that. Uh, she cannot change the legal system, even though she likes to uh, create these um, all kinds of she's a very creative litigator. So she creates all kinds of uh, lacuna, like, she, you know, exceptions and all kinds of, you know, in the 70s, she even created procedures that didn't exist because if they wanted to deport someone, they would just load them into a Jeep and drive them to the border and throw them over the fence. And she um, found ways um to fight the system so that they finally had to create procedures and procedures to stall and procedures to have hearings. And then the person could stay with their uh, at home or with their family or with their community a few months longer until they were finally deported. Now, she never actually was able to prevent a single deportation, but she was able to, uh, in a cost uh, effectiveness uh, sense, uh, uh, a pioneer a kind of a, a, a bureaucratic heaviness that finally one day made deportations not worth it. Um, and so there's all kinds of ways that she measures her successes and failures versus her victories and losses, right? Um, there's a there's a there's a wonderful civil rights lawyer in Israel, a second generation one named Michael Svald, who, who published a book. And in it, there's a whole uh, sort of treatise around ne the need to differentiate between a legal success and failure and a legal uh, victory and loss. Um, because uh, these, you know, Lea would say, for example, at least it's part of recorded history. If I hadn't gone to court, nobody would know that they were doing this. So I couldn't win. But. It's part of the historical record. And one day people will know who did what, when, why, and how. Um, and so it's a very kind of broader, holistic notion of what can and cannot happen in the arena of, of, of litigating the occupation. Um, but I don't think that she believes that that's where, um, where the solution will come from. But as part of that, too, I'm also curious as of her role doing this as a woman as well. You know, so much of what we see in North America, at least, are you know male leaders going back and forth and uh, talking about these issues. And now we have this, as, as you mentioned, a very strong woman who is 
litigating these issues and pushing forth and doing things that you know are challenging some convention so so how much does her as a woman doing this change the narrative around her if if at all do you want to take this one philippe or do you want me to uh, you're talking so well you should do it i know oh <laughs> i'll let women answer this question um leah's got a really uh wonderful um approach to, to, to this question. She always says it, it was always to my advantage that I was a woman. So Leah is in, in her long career has more often than not either been only leftist in the room or the only in the room or the only woman in the room. Hmm. And she, uh, whatever, you know, the stuff she's made of, however, she's wired. <laughs> I don't know how one would say that about a person. What makes her tick gender, um, uh, never felt to her like an obstacle. It felt to her like something that she could use to her advantage. So uh, with her clients, she was at first their sister, then she was their mother. Now, as you can see in the film, she's sort of like their grandmother. Um, with the soldiers, she was a woman with green eyes who could bat her eyelashes and, you know, and, and kick up a, a, a little mini shit storm at the, at, the, at the gates to the army base or wherever they were holding her clients. But she was still a woman and she was a little woman. She even says that that always worked her advantage. The fact that she was small, uh, the fact that uh, she was much, much less likely to be beaten up. So she would be spit on and she would be loathed like a woman and she would be called a whore and a whore of the PLO and uh, and and worse that I obviously won't say on the podcast and um, and she so she knew that in some ways that created vulnerabilities and in other ways it just let her sort of slide through a whole bunch of cracks you know that that uh, and she just doesn't have a man's ego and without um, not that some women don't have big egos, but Leah doesn't have um, that kind of an ego. She's never been in it, in it for the credit, and she's just motivated by doing. She's a doer. She's pull up your sleeves and get in there and do it. Um, and she has always felt like all of those things have worked to her advantage. Once she said, because I'm a woman, nobody expected me to, as a lawyer to bring the villa and the Volvo. <laughs> so without villa and Volvo, I could be a human rights lawyer in the trenches, you know, working uh, – uh, working with, um, you know, um, the uh, the uh, les miserables of this world. Um, so th- that's her version on it. Um, and if that's her version, you know, it, that's her truth. <laughs> right. But having having followed her for to make this film, do you feel as though that's a- an accurate reflection of her career and how she's perceived? Look, she's she's yes. she's naughty. <laughs> in her in her characters you know she's she's a naughty girl she's a she's a she's a she's playful and she's uh i think i think that it were it i think that she really has been able to make it work it's disarming mm-hmm. ultimately uh her tomboyness or her naughty girl or a little bit of femme fatale but her you know very chutzpahdick all of these things have probably worked to her advantage um and um yeah, including the gendered aspect of, uh, you know what, somehow I'm an outsider no matter what, even if nothing else. I mean, she's a middle class Jewish Ashkenazi, sort of a white Jew in Israel. I mean, she comes from she comes from a bunch of village. Um, but the gender thing, you know, is 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 the extent that it's a handicap. She turned that into something that uh, was disarming and helped her do what she needed to do. 
So in in her career, I'm curious. You know, she's obviously had a very long career. And and Philippe, I'm wondering about the actual construction now of the film because it traces her in in doing her work, doing cases, sort of in real time, but also weaving in some archival footage and showing through the the arc of her career. So just as a, a narrative structure for the film, how did you come to that decision to tell this story? Look, it's. <clears throat> It's um, by it's being a documentarist. When we thought of making a movie on Lea, and we and I, I first went to um, to um, to see her practice. It was even before filming, and just to to uh, make myself an opinion if if there was something to film. Well, I came back and and I said, okay, well, the movie is going to be mostly her past because today she's not doing much. I mean, what she's doing is a lot, but, and it's not what you're seeing in the movie, but she's, her past was to defend, in her, in the past she was defending, um, a, a very big cases in, in, as you can see in the movie. But, uh, in the, in, in the 90s, there was, there ha, there has been a lot of, uh, other lawyers, uh, doing, uh, the same kind of uh, litigation that she is doing, and and so my uh, um, our first uh, idea was to make a movie with a lot of past, and then we've been uh, submerged by reality and and lucky also uh, that that from the moment I mean when we begin to film there was. Um, uh, a period of troubles uh, in Jerusalem and a lot of attack, just like the one of the that the, that the kid and his cousin did, and 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 those people became her client, and we were there uh, filming, and then we got exactly in the in a inverse situation where um, there was not enough um, room for the past because because the present was so. Uh, intense and dense, and and therefore we spent a lot of time editing the movie to be able to interwin past and present without um, uh, losing any of their strength. And how much do you think that that past footage helps inform sort of that contemporary stuff that you see? You know, as a viewer. To go back and forth, I, I find it always useful to see where people come from and and sort of the arc of things and how they develop. But as a the filmmakers, the directors of this, how does that inform what the narrative is? I think there's, there's, oh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I think it's. I think you you cannot understand the situation in 2019 without looking at the last 50, 70, 100 years. And maybe you you did not notice uh, that at the first uh, viewing, but but people who will watch the movie many times they will see that even the in the animation technique that we used, we deliberately uh, used a lot of uh, press clips and and um, and archival uh, judicial archival. Uh, to um, uh, animate um, the the client of today, 
Because I, I think that you cannot uh, understand them and their situation without understanding that they are also the result of a, of an history, of a process of the all of the all all the years that are behind us, and that they, in a sense, our clients today inherit um, inherit a struggle uh, which they they're born into or they're sort of you know cast into almost unwittingly. It's not like either of those clients probably would have had the incidences or the made the decisions that they. Uh, made had they not been born into this history with a big H that you know sort of bore down on them. Um, I would also add to that that um, there's one point in the film. I don't know if this is too much of a giveaway, but so be it. Um, it's documentary. We're not all about uh, spoilers, or let's assume we're not. But at some point in the film, uh, toward the end, um, when uh, one of the big cases that um, she's handling uh, comes in with a with a a uh, guilty verdict and it's when she's sort of most markedly upset um and uh and sort of you know you see you see you see all the all the wrinkles and all the creases in her face and you see um you see the weight of it all coming down on her um and she's not somebody who usually stops to reflect and let let her pain um settle but um uh, she starts asking these rhetorical questions um, along the lines of uh, why? Why didn't they? Why couldn't you know? Why didn't the judges see? Why? Why couldn't they hear? Didn't didn't they realize? And so on. And um, you know, um, most viewers at that point might be scratching their heads and going, "Well, why didn't you see? Or why didn't you know? Or why didn't you realize that it wasn't going to work?" And then the very next thing that happens is. Uh, she comes in with archival footage of herself from 30 years prior, and her first line is, we always lose. And so uh, Leah knew better than anyone else that Leah was going to lose. And that still uh, doesn't mean that Leah doesn't start each and every case over and over and over again um, with the working assumption that she could win that this time she could win. Um, and I think that's a really, really, really important aspect of the movie is uh, you're, and I want the viewers to know that, that ultimately you're not smart. She's outsmarting all of us by exercising or by, by rebooting herself each time anew with faith uh, because for her, cynicism is not the way to do this work. She has to do it with some degree of good faith. And that's certainly what stood out to me uh, in the film. And, and the other thing, too, is that, you know, as a historian myself, I often tell my students, you, know, you don't want to look at things as this binary of this is when it starts, this is when something ends necessarily, because right. the reverberations of it continue for a long time. And when you look at, at particularly, I think, with Leia's career, it's a great example of this, that individual cases can come and go, but sort of the whole overall push and what she's doing has never ended and it, right. and it continues and, and the importance of it is always going to be there and and that's what makes this such a, a remarkable story and and the way in which it's told i think is is quite effective to get to that end and for me at least that's fantastic it's nice it's nice to hear you know I'll, i'm gonna i'm gonna throw out uh, a kind of a statistic and it, and it could be in some ways, a good place just to wrap. And we intentionally didn't put it into the film because we didn't want it to be an informative film. We wanted it to be 
a lived experience kind of film. But the statistic is very simple, that since 1967, when Israel occupied the West Bank and Gaza and the Golan Heights, an estimated 800,000 Palestinians have been arrested, detained, jailed, and imprisoned with and without due process in both military and civil courts for resisting Israeli occupation, both violently and nonviolently. And Leat Semel has defended tens of thousands of them. And that's a lot of clients. (laughs) That's a lot of lives. Um, And that's a lot of failures. And and that's a lot of people who really, really appreciated having her as their lawyer, um, even though she wasn't able to to change the world. Uh, And and yeah, so... uh, you, that is a nice place to wrap. I do just have one last question that, that I'm curious <laughs> about. Um, and, and maybe, Philip, we'll start with you. Because I'm always curious for people who create things uh, like this. Uh, what And it's, you've both alluded to it a little bit, but for the audience, you know, when the audience walks out of this film, what do you hope, as the director, what do you hope they take away from it? What is, what is the message? What is the, the meaning that you want them to, to come away from the film with? Uh, it's not um, it's not mon- monolithic, you know. Mm. Um, it's not that I want them to think one thing, but I think I'm doing documentary and not not um, a, a, no. I think I'm doing documentary because when in a documentary we take time to show things that are not shown usually, that are not shown in the news and that are not. Uh, making the high, high, uh, high lines. I mean, the titles of the newspaper. Headlines. Headlines. Thank you. That not making the headlines of the newspaper, but we're showing how things are in reality. And I'm I'm doing that the the documentaries for more than twenty years, and I it was I didn't know that the, the making documentaries were, was like this but you you go and encounter life as it is after that it's our integrity to 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 transmit it to the public in the in the most um um fidelity fidel way that we can that we think and and we have this integrity I hope we manage as much as we as we as as it can be. Uh, so I hope that people will get out of the of the screening with a change, with something that they will say, okay, things are not exactly how I thought they were. It, it it's enough for me. I I uh, I I just want to uh, to bring them. Uh, to bring the public to 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 spend an hour and a half with Le- with Leah Semel and understand what she's doing and why uh, and and came out of the movie thinking, well, it's not what I thought. And, and Rachel, what about you? It's funny. I I have this is my fourth film that I've directed. This is Philippe's directing debut, and it's my fourth. Um, long format documentary as a director and I think I know less than any other time what I what I want to accomplish with it um, strangely so I, 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 I my 
my honest answer is that I don't know. However, with that said, since I don't really know how to say I don't know and then shut up, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, there's a lot of life force there. Uh, There's a lot of imperfection. I hope we were able to convey um, some of her imperfections and vices, her flaws, let's say, uh, and nevertheless come out with a person that makes you go, damn, you know, that's a way to be in the world. Um, we could use more of that. Um, maybe, maybe I can be a little more daring. Maybe I can be a little more vocal. Maybe I can not be fearless because fearless would be psychopathic, but maybe I can, uh, overcome qualms. I think her daughter says it in many ways best at the very end of the movie. She says, you know, there's a price in all of this, but it's so rare to see a woman like that who, Again, she says it herself. She says, who's not, it's not that she's fearless, but who meets, meets what's scary head on and pushes through it without qualms and without hesitation, that it's worth it. And, um, yeah, so I think that more than anything, some kind of inspiration and, you know, it's, I want people to understand things about Israel, Palestine, but, but for me, this film and this portrait, if you will, is, uh, is completely goes beyond those borders. Well, I think that's a, a lovely place to leave it. So, uh, Rachel and Philippe, thank you so much for the time this afternoon. Thank you, Sean. Thank it was, you. It was very nice. <laughs> and interesting yes. For us, right. for us to a chance yes. to reflect. So there you have it. My conversation with Rachel Leah Jones and Philippe Belaish. And my thanks to them for taking the time to talk to me. And again, the documentary is Advocate. We'd certainly encourage you to check it out. If you just Google advocate documentary, you'll be able to find information on how to access the film, whether it's digitally or at a theater near you, as there are some showings going on, some special events still through the fall and a wide release has been discussed as well. So hopefully you'll be able to check it out in a theater near you. So that brings us to the end of our first show back after our hiatus if you have not yet please do subscribe to the show apple podcast google podcast wherever it is you get your shows give us the comments and the ratings and all that good stuff that helps other people find the show keeps us going here as well if you have any questions or comments for the show history slam at gmail.com or you can find me on twitter at dr shawnee fever so if you're listening to this when we're dropping it on september the 10th We'll be back next Wednesday on Wednesday, September the 18th with another new episode. And then every other Wednesday after that through the fall uh, into December. So through the end of 2019, we'll be back every other Wednesday with new episodes. So I, I know we went away for a couple months, but we're coming back full force through the fall. And I'm very excited about some of the stuff that we have lined up for you. And if you have missed anything, want to go back, check out some old episodes. Everything is there, not only on the podcast feeds, but also at activehistory.ca. And I would encourage you to check out the site. If you're not a regular visitor, we have some wonderful material. Uh, there was some great stuff over the summer this year. We had a wonderful summer, I think. And we're coming strong in the fall as well with some really well-written pieces that. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to talk about how much I've enjoyed the site recently because we went on hiatus. 
but uh, the, the stuff that's gone up recently has been terrific. So do check out activehistory.ca as you know, when the fall comes around, we ramp it up and we get the stuff going and, and really looking forward to what we have in store over the next little while. So we will be back with you with another episode next week. But until then, if you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.